I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. An extra trill opus today, Have Scott. We got something <laughs> for you. So uh, some months ago, uh, early, uh, back in the summer, uh, this article uh, swept the Internet called It's Time to Let Classical Music Die. And uh, first, you know, so with the with the headline alone um all sorts of folks were in my dms and on my facebook and i was like oh here we go another article about how classical music is old and outdated blah 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 that's what i thought yeah that we should let it die and focus on some other kind of music but it's not that at all right yeah it's um it's this really poignant perspective uh from a composer and a writer whose name is nibal uh mesud uh uh they do work um, you know, in and outside of classical music, when you're talking about uh, racial equity and and uh, and, and you know the the uh, disol- the uh, dissolvement of uh, white supremacy everywhere it exists. So uh, it, it was an honor um, for the both of us to uh, get to talk to Nibal, and uh, and I know that's a conversation that you're really going to enjoy. But um, a few little uh, a few little announcements and housekeeping things before we get into that. Um, Scott, I just w- this is the first time we've been behind the mics. Um, um, since the Triloquy Spooktacular came out. So I just want to thank you for all the production you did on that. I, I was glad I, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback from that uh, opus. Oh, and, nice. You know, I, I don't know if we have the time to <laughs> produce something that in-depth every single week, but uh, it, it was definitely something special for Halloween. So I, I appreciate um, what you did there and uh, and uh, including the uh, specifically including the story co-written by yours truly. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take credit for that. Right on, right on. Do it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so that was great. So thank you for that. And then, um, you know, we've recently launched uh, the video, uh, the video portions of Triloquy, right? Right. Um, I, we don't have a name for that yet, but um, the idea is to put you in the room with us when we have uh, a musician come in for an interview on the podcast. And if they can bring their instrument and we can get a studio, then I I'm firing up all my various cameras to get get some good video to share as well. Yeah, so the first video uh, features uh, Nirmala and Burpati, who are here a few opuses back, uh, you know, our dive into uh, Indian classical music. Uh, uh, by now, the, the video of Kashi Mana Ahua should also uh, yeah. be live. Uh, she you improvised know. that song on the spot. Yeah, just two two really incredible perspectives on this thing uh, we call classical music that I'm sure uh, might be a little different to you, so be sure to uh, check those out at triloquy.com. Org. Um, I also want to shout out James Napoli. Uh, I think it's safe to say that he's joined the team now. Um, as as uh, you know, he he took all the phenomenal photos you see uh, at Triloquy.org. Uh, he helps us with the production and the uh, facilitation of um, our live uh, in studio guests. So huge shout out to uh, James Napoli for uh, helping us uh, do the good work here. And then um, you know, recently Scott, we've uh, made. Uh, 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 several uh, community connections, including uh, with the Jennings Community School. So shout out to Val and all those kids there who uh, we've been in contact with. Uh, we're, we're also working on uh, sort of a live uh, sort of performance series uh, here yep. in St. Paul. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, a friend of mine uh, named Molly Mayer is 
sort of uh, one of the music queens in the Twin Cities. You know, mm -hmm. she's got she's got her finger on the pulse of what's going on. And normally, the series that she produces uh, fall into the realm of some nebulous words, Americana, yeah. roots, mm -hmm. um, and even as, fo as even, far as genres of music, Americana and right. roots. Yeah, and and even I guess you could go so far as to even say folk has. Um, a little bit of a fog around it, but she's interested now in doing uh, some classical uh, series, but living composers. Yeah, people, how we define classical, right. though. Uh, and and <laughs> uh, people of color and uh, living composers and trying to get both um, the younger crowd that might be interested in it but doesn't know where to start, along with the people who are fans of it, if we can get Everybody in the same room listening to something new, I think that it has the chance to be a, a really exciting series. The brand is growing. Triloquy is growing. It's so exciting. It's a gradual takeover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is also, um, you know, shifting gears here a little bit, this is also the first time uh, that uh, Scott and I have been behind the microphone since the passing of the late, great John Witherspoon. So I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, some of his work, Scott. Boomerang. Boomerang. Okay, I'm so glad that you know that movie because so many folks, it seems like, you know, if you get maybe three or four or five years younger than me, even the black folks, the black kids, you know, don't know that movie. But mm. I look, one of Martin Lawrence's greatest performances, as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned, um, uh, one of the many incredible John Witherspoon performances. Most folks know him uh, from the uh, movie Friday. But, mm -hmm. um, he, you know, he also played an important role in uh, a series um, called the Wayans Brothers that I watched on, I, I think it was UPN back in those days. Did, didn't he have a spot in I'm Gonna Get You Sucker? Was, was he in that one? Was, oh, I don't know if I remember that. I might be thinking of something else. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, but yeah, Boomerang. Um, more more recently, uh, he had a role in uh, in the Boondocks, yeah. uh, which was supposed to come there. back soon. So I don't know what they're going to do about that. Um, also, if you've heard of a show called Black Jesus, have, have you? Have I showed you that show yet? I haven't. Okay, next time you're over, or next time I'm over your place, we're going to watch a little bit of Black Jesus. Um, John Witherspoon um, involved in that. I watched one of his, um, you know, the Breakfast Club out of New York. They reposted uh, their last interview with him that I think was back in. 2015. Um, and I watched that again. And, you know, he talked about how he grew up poor. He grew up so poor that he had to wear two left boots to school. He didn't even have two shoes that matched, you know. And, um, you know, of course, that makes me think about how the arts can, you know, offer an escape, uh, you know, so to speak, and, you know, a, a, a way to uh, to to experience, you know, a more comfortable life and a more comfortable experience. And uh, while it wasn't immediately music for him, it, it was um, acting. So um, shout out and rest in power um, to John Witherspoon. Uh, while while he is principally principally remembered as a uh, as an actor, he does have a a slight connection to music. So Scott, do you know the uh, the tune "What Becomes of the Brokenhearted"? It was a uh, one of those Motown tunes made famous by uh, Jimmy Ruffin. Oh, of course. Um, the uh, the lyrics were actually co-written by John Witherspoon. John wow. Witherspoon and his brother uh, William wrote the wow. lyrics uh, to that song. And uh, I found a uh, a little uh, piano rendition that we can uh, we can sample here now in honor of the late great John Witherspoon.
beautiful work there by uh, pianist Christopher Joel Carter uh, for his rendition of What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, a song made famous by Jimmy Ruffin, but co-written by uh, William and John Witherspoon, who the world uh, just lost. So again, um, shout out and rest in power to John Witherspoon. All right, so... Um, Back as, to the lecture at hand. As as a as a transition into uh, our conversation with uh, Nibal Mesud, you know he he uh, you know does a lot of work in uh, liberating uh, people of color within this genre of classical music. Um, he is of uh, uh, Middle Eastern descent, and he um, he plays a lot of uh, and listens to a lot of uh, Arabic music. And um, I want to shout out my friend uh, Michael, uh, Michael Mossad, who works for the Minnesota Orchestra. He uh, turned me on um, to a piece of Arabic music that I think just about everyone knows. So I had him over uh, to my place a, a few weeks back, and I said, okay, so is there a sample or a little bit of Arabic music that just about everyone knows, but we don't know that mm-hmm. we know it or whatever. And immediately, within half a second, he's like, "Oh yeah, obviously." So I hand him my Xbox controller. You know, we go to um, we go to YouTube, and he shows me this. <laughs> So of course, Scott. <laughs> so you know, you probably know that as a Jay Z tune, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so, so yeah, that's that, big pimping, right? Yeah, big pimping. And actually, um, that uh, the the sort of feud over that sample ended, if not this year, just last year, not a long time ago. And Jay Z actually uh, won the the lawsuit for that sample. Wow. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, you know, if you're married to Beyonce, I'm not going to say too many bad things about you uh, with a microphone on, but just something. <laughs> <laughs> with the microphone because, on. Because because of course uh, he doesn't need the uh, Super Bowl. They uh, they need him. Whatever y'all y'all go back to Opus. Whatever where we where. We talk about that um, it, anyway. So um, you know, uh, Arabic music and music by people of color, the the tradition and the culture behind that, um, you know, is so infused in so much of uh, our day to day. And um, the same can be said about classical musicians in uh, or or people of color in classical music and how that uh, parlays and applies to all of the uh, conversations of white supremacy and and uh, racial equity that that exists, you know, even beyond classical music. And Nibal does a great job of exploring those conversations. I was glad to get the chance to ask him questions like, OK, you you knew that you were going to get some blowback, but. Some of the people that took offense to it felt like, well, I'm not, I don't discriminate. Right. And, you know, so what if I don't have a lot of people of color in my friendship circle? I don't have anything against them. So I can, from that perspective, I can understand how they would go, well, hey, why are you lumping me in there? Yeah. Okay. But, um, it, so it was very, it was, it was great to be able to get his direct thought on that. And, and, and it was a simple one, you know, to just, just listen and be there and be open. Yeah. So, uh, so, so let's go ahead and get into the uh, the conversation we had with uh, Nibal, Mr. Nibal Mesud. Thank you so much for uh, joining us digitally here. It's great to have you. 
It's great to be here. Thank you. You're in the uh, you're on the East Coast over in the Washington D.C. area. How's uh, how's life over there been treating you? Um, you know, it's been good. Um, I've been yearning to go to New York lately. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah, um, well, there's a few more musical opportunities there. Oh, so the the music scene is kind of uh, waning in D.C. I, I is what I hear. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, that's that's too bad. What what, what do you think uh, contributes to that sort of thing? Um, I think honestly, gentrification um, and the lack of funding for arts resources here. Um, there are folks definitely trying, and there's a lot of really cool um, arts organizations around this area, but uh, not as much for people who are interested in projects that require a bit more funding, like classical composition. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, and we're definitely going to uh, get into that as it applies to, uh, you know, this article of yours that got so much attention. But uh, but before we get into that, how about you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about, about your uh, background and your musical training for those who uh, might be unfamiliar? Yeah. So um, I started, basically, I discovered music kind of on my own. Um, I joined band uh, while I was in elementary school uh, and fell in love with the flute and okay, the flute. kind of okay. discovered. Yeah. Um, I eventually switched to the oboe, but I still do have a deep love for the flute. And uh, I started composing around in high school. And uh, classical music was kind of the music that I had the most access to at that time, uh, particularly because I had such a great band program. So that's the music I kind of started off with. Um, and I went to college. I went to Lawrence University uh, and studied composition there with Asha Srinivasan and Joanne Metcalf, um, both incredible teachers. And since then, uh, I've been more interested in learning music about my own culture and studying that. Um, and lately I've been reading Johnny Farage's great book, Inside Arabic Music, um, to kind of study what Middle Eastern music is like, trying to learn the theory behind it, and hopefully compose in that style more. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, access to band. It was sort of your access to, you know, this sort of art music. And I have a, um, a, a sort of complicated relationship with that idea because I started in band in seventh grade, and, you know, my, my career uh, bloomed from there. But I can't help but to think, wow, what if that music training program uh, was more uh, encompassing? What, what if it wasn't just mm -hmm. so strictly in the tradition of Western classical music? How much more um, engaged could uh, more people be with art music and instrumental music if it wasn't so rigid from, from the very beginning when you're talking about uh, band and maybe beginning orchestra and all that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. Um, I do know that there is this one organization, I forget their name, but they do like these after school classes in DC um, for students. And uh, one of the things they do is like beat classes uh, and, you know, classes in music genres that are not just classical. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's exactly what's needed in our schools. I mean, I'm trying to imagine what if I had the opportunity to study Arabic music from the beginning? Mm -hmm, right. Uh, how much more closer would I be to my culture? Um, and how much more approval would have that gotten from my family? How much more understanding would have that gotten? Can you touch a little bit on the difference between 
the Western music that we know and the Arabic music that you're talking about? What is the difference? Is it a theory-based thing? What's the difference? Yeah. So the way we conceive of music is that we want to create this thing called tarab, this kind of... Uh, it's similar to what we call the sublime in classical music. Mm. Uh, this um, feeling of elation that comes from music. Uh, and the purpose of making music in Middle East is to always create tarab. That's your first priority. So out of that comes a need for improvisation. Um, and also a combination of vocal music. It's a very vocal genre. Mm. So I would say it's defined by vocal music, by improvisation, um, but also uh, an interesting way of looking at intervallic relationships. Um, we have, instead of scales, we have these things called jins, um, which Genies? are a series. <laughs> Genies. <laughs> yeah, no, jins. Um, J-I-N-S. And it's a set of three to four notes, or sometimes five. Um, and each of them have their own intervals. Some of them are somewhere between, um, you know, a major third and a minor third, or a flat and a natural. Um, and, you know, there are six different ways to tune an E. Um, yeah, and each one creates a different mood or a different flavor that's entirely in its own world. It's cool. so interesting that you're talking about moods and flavors. A couple opuses back, um, we had um, an artist uh, who who's into um, Indian classical music. She and, played the veena. And played the veena and is a professional in that world. And she was saying, uh, you know, some similar things, talking about, you know, the moods of the music and... Improvisation uh, is and such the, a big the, part. The improvisation parts of it. You know, she talked about, uh, when we talk about ragas, let me see if I can remember this number. I think she said there are 34,700 776 different ragas, which, you know, translate into different feelings and emotions uh, that make this music so um, so much more alive than the way we think about uh, Western classical music. And and maybe this is a, a, a great time for us to get into that infamous article of yours. Uh, so, uh, Nibal, you, you ended the article um, by saying, so my fellow musicians of color, please reach out to me and let's build a future where we are liberated. So I, I feel like that, you know, when I read the article, I didn't have a choice but to do um, exactly that. So um, in addition to writing uh, and putting your thoughts out there, I have to thank you for, um, you know, encouraging and inviting this feedback and the conversations uh, that, that are connected with, with what you've said. Yeah, I'm really glad you reached out. I'm really glad to have met you. Um, did you anticipate the, the response that you got from this article, It's Time for Classical Music to Die? Not at all. Okay. Um, you, you thought it, you would just say it and, 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 and put it out there and that would just be the end of it? I expected some response. Um, I didn't expect it to go viral. Mm. So I expected just a few angry comments and maybe a few people reach out to me but um, definitely, I didn't imagine the scale it would get to. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me right off the bat that you were, you know, even in the few responses you were expecting, you were expecting them to be a little angry, a little, you know, uh, pointed towards you. Uh, was there a specific event or, or anything that uh, inspired this article and the series of articles you've written on this topic? 
Yeah, well, um, as I do mention in um, my article, I have PTSD. Um, and part of that does come from actually a previous run-in with um, some white supremacists at my old university. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's kind of where I developed these rules. I found that I was constantly breaking these five rules I set up in my first article, Am I Not a Minority? Sure, you know, I'm not allowed to be too radical. I must depend on white funding and institutional support. I must work within an institution, never against it. I must never express anger or resentment at my treatment. And I must remain calm when harassed. Uh, and these are rules that, you know, anytime a person of color breaks them, they will receive a harsh response. So I knew that um, I would get you know, some negative feedback about this article because I was breaking at least the first rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and uh, same thing. I also expected there to be actual, like, neo-Nazis um, who would react to this piece. Um, ben Shapiro, actually, he didn't retweet the article, but he retweeted an article calling for me to die first. Yeah, uh, and and actually, yeah. we're going to talk about that here in a bit. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I I did find that, and, and I have that here. Uh, but but before we uh, before we get too deep, uh, you know, we're we're using this phrase. You use this phrase, "people of color," and I'm gonna um mm -hmm. and I'm gonna read uh this excerpt uh, from the article. You say the few scraps given to minorities are overwhelmingly white, occupied by white cisgendered women or uh, LGBT plus individuals. The few people of color who are given access to institutional space are most often light-skinned and non-black while also exoticized and tokenized. You know, I struggle with um, that idea so much because, you know, I've gotten a lot of flack um, and a lot of hate mail on the things that I've said concerning um, racial equity versus uh, gender equity, who is actually the beneficiary of, of uh, this institution support and um, who isn't. Um, can you go uh, more into why you, um, you know, make it very clear that um, white cisgender women and LGBT plus individuals have uh, been historically not at the center of these quote unquote diversity initiatives? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned in my first article um, that classical music institutions tend to take a top-down approach. They take trickle-down economics and try to apply that to, uh, well, um, diversity. Uh, so, uh, and I've just seen this um, so many times where, uh, you know, instead of focusing specifically on race and on racism, uh, organizations prefer to just talk about diversity. Um, and any time that diversity is mentioned, it almost always includes uh, white cisgender women, um, and a little bit less often, but still more often than people of color, uh, white LGBT folks. Um, and I think their intention with that is to kind of say, look, we see the disparity here um, but we're going to focus on the white minorities first, and then we'll get to the people of color. 
Uh, it's kind of the same pattern that's been going on, say, with um, the gay rights movement. Um, after, you know, and around my generation, where folks were saying, you know, let's take care of the white LGBT folks before we get into, you know, uh, trans people of color or, um, LG, you know, homeless LGBT youth who are also more often people of color than they are white. Um, and we see that also in the media as well. White minorities, uh, you know, tend to get more media coverage than uh, minorities of color. Um, so I think, you know, in classical music, we're taking that same lens, the same view that um, we're going to help the people who are closest to the top, who are the most privileged first, because those are the people we see first. Um, you know, there are... Uh, more white women um, visible in classical music than there are queer people of color. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and what you say reminds me of uh, 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 one of the leaders of the uh, International uh, Women's March, Tamika Mallory. Uh, she, I, I saw an interview of hers, and uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, when you don't focus on the most marginalized, you're always leaving people behind. And even in your article in um, It's Time to Let Classical Music Die, you acknowledge that a lot of the things that you have learned are rooted in, um, you know, black liberation work by uh, queer uh, women, uh, specifically queer black women, and 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 how that conversation uh, really drives the inequity that uh, we see in classical music so often. Absolutely, um, it it was uh, mainly from the people who actually saved my life while I was in college. Um, you know, I had this run-in with um, these white supremacists who uh, were targeting me because I was a queer person of color in the conservatory, but also because I was the leader of the LGBT organization uh, there. So I had a lot of visibility and um, it really took teaming up with um, a lot of uh, queer black women who were also facing the same and worse um, conditions and uh, everything they taught me. Um, you know, shout out to Kira Elaine Jett, um, who has been like one of my good friends and actually has helped me edit these articles. Um, and also to Bree Colston, who runs Brown Girl Recovery at, in uh, the Bronx. Um, and, you know, Jude Saint, another good friend of mine. Um, who have all been very helpful in teaching me and being patient with me um, as I learned and learned how to listen. Uh, tw twice now you've mentioned run-ins with these white supremacists. I mean, if you're comfortable, I would love to just hear more about that. What, what, what um, were, the, were the events? Was this real life? Was this digital? Yeah. So it was a little combination of both. So... You know, we're in a trimester system at my university. And at the beginning of that trimester, um, I found a poster or several posters around campus. Um, I think it's said, are you afraid to speak your mind on campus? You know, come challenge the liberal orthodoxy or something like that. 
and it was in my old dorm room. So I got together with a few folks and we had someone actually go into that meeting um, and pretend to be one of them to see what it's about. And uh, they ended up having several secret meetings where they talked about, you know, bringing back intelligence testing. Um, they had this one meeting about the merits of Japanese internment. Um, and, ha- and, uh, ha- and how did you get wind of these secret meetings? Uh, basically, there's no pleasant way to put this. We were spying on them. They were spying on us. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. So they had several people who were kind of cyber-stalking us and cyber-bullying us. Uh, And I actually had people stalking my Facebook um, till way after I graduated. Uh, And so there was kind of like this cyber war going on as well. Um, And also a lot of cyber-bullying. There was this one person who was uh, just being aggressive to many of my friends. this was also at a time when I uh, wasn't completely out as being genderqueer. And I was actually outed several times um, because they uh, found a private account of mine. And someone who I discovered was actually one of my close friends before this event actually went into my private account, um, shared this sensitive information with them. And so they were literally you know, spying and stalking us. Did you ever feel physically in danger? Yes. Do you, um, would you mind talking about that a little bit, or is that too sensitive for you? No, I can talk about it. Uh, um, even, even if it's just one instance. Yeah. Um, well, there wasn't any direct threat of violence to me. Someone did send a picture of a gun to my friend, um, and... I also knew that the way the security worked in that school, anyone could walk up with a gun and start shooting at any minute. Um, It's very easy uh, to do that there. Um, And we also were just frankly not getting the support of the university. Um, This was an organization of students who were trying to be officially recognized by the school. And the university actually encouraged Uh, people to come to their meetings. So, you know, that's a traditional PWI move. Uh, But, um, you know, so we knew that the school didn't have our back um, and that it's so easy for someone to actually get violent. Um, There was one instance where we were somehow all ended up smoking cigarettes behind a dumpster. And that was one point where I was sure a fight was going to break out, but luckily one didn't. Um, Yeah, and it was also a bit difficult because I have an oath of nonviolence. So if someone started attacking me, I, you know, I could defend myself a little bit, but I couldn't like fight back. So I ended up uh, getting a secret dorm room for us to hide in that no one knew about because everyone knew where we lived. Um, and, you know, I, as an oboist at the time, you know, I, you know, kept a clear, um, 
plan uh, to, you know, use my uh, reed knife in case of in case of an emergency, um, or my roommate would, um, or at least would just hide it from plain sight. Um, and there was one point where I came in and discovered my door was open and completely freaked out um, because I thought someone had come in. So it wasn't that there were any direct threats to violence, but anything was believable, anything was possible. But you felt it. Yes, exactly. Oh, my goodness. And, and you know, this complicated relationship that you're talking about, you know, with the school that wouldn't um, uh, support you and, you know, this community that you, you know, are a part of, whether these people like it or not, reminds me of just, you know, what you talk about in It's Time for Classical Music to Die, this complicated relationship, this abusive relationship that so many musicians of color have with the institute, the, the institution of, uh, of, of classical music. And, and when you talk Talk about this, you know, abusive relationship. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that rings uh, true for for so many people. Why did Why did you choose uh, that analogy, musicians of color and classical music, in a uh, a Stockholm syndrome style abusive relationship? Where, where did that comparison come from? Yeah, um, I went back and forth quite a lot on whether to use that analogy because mm. I I knew. Um, some people really wouldn't appreciate it. Uh, but as I was writing that down, I felt the same relief I did any other time I realized I was in an abusive relationship. Um, and that's how I knew that it was literal. Um, that uh, the relationship um, I have with classical music and that I'm sure many other people of color do have um, and as evidenced by, you know, these rules I laid out in the first article and the way uh, these institutions function, that they do cause actual trauma um, and enforce a culture that um, produces trauma for people of color. Uh, so I, you know, decided if this is the truth, you know, I might as well tell it, uh, not try to hide it or sugarcoat it. And then, uh, you know, for me, the the painful part of that truth is when you uh, when you say, and I'm quoting here, unfortunately, not everyone can escape. What does this mean for the the person who comes to this realization? It, are are they among the people who can't? Excuse me. Are, are they among the people who can't escape? I mean, uh, or, or when you say there are people, uh, when when you say not everyone can escape, um, are, are you talking about the knowledge of, of of the the violent nature of the institution of classical music? Talk, talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, because we live in a capitalist society, um, funding for the arts and the kind of art we want to create um, can be limited to these institutions. So if you want to create art that sounds like what people in, class, in the classical world are creating, then you have to engage with it at least a little bit uh, in order to see your artwork uh, be created. Um, and because it's inherently tied to capitalism, this is a system that none of us can fully escape from. Mm. Uh, it's, so uh, while the goal is 
for me at least, for us to break out and create our own genre and create our own music, create our own institutions, um, find our own ways to create our own art without depending on, um, you know, the permission of white folks. Uh, I also recognize that it's going to take us a while to get there. So one thing we need to do now is recognize the relationship we have right now. And each of us needs to find a way to do what we need to do, uh, create the art we need to create, while also um, balancing this relationship. And, and, uh, and you make such a, a great point when you tie, you know, the, the more I do this work and the older I get, the more I really see and realize the role uh, that capitalism plays in, in all of these issues. You know, I think of uh, uh, Scott, you know, I, I think about it most when, you know, I'm on the Internet looking up. Maybe I just need to know the uh, the year a piece of music was composed. So I, I'll type in a, a, a composer, especially with the contemporary music, I'll type in a composer's name and the piece of the music. And I have to sift through the first eight or nine or 10 or 11 uh, links of how to buy this piece of music and how, you know, I can be advertised to versus learning about the actual piece of music, you know, from right. from, from there all the way, uh, uh, Nibal, to what you're talking about. Uh, I, I think we really all need to do a better job of recognizing how the institution of capitalism also plays into these issues. Um, Absolutely. Uh, actually, Nabal, if if I could ask a question from the perspective of the middle-aged white person that I am, that is not looking at all and, and probably can't see the things that you write about in your articles, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, from the first article, Am I Not a Minority? And building on the idea of trickle-down social justice, um, what in your mind is more equitable for people of color and uh, musicians of color and on the LGBTQ plus uh, in that community? Um, are you of a mind that their music featured inside a regular season is more equitable or should there be concerts dedicated to those composers? That's a really good question. Um, Neither of those are, I guess, ideal because that still depends on a white institution making these decisions. Um, I, I suppose pe uh, institutions by people of color, that's the ideal. Uh, if it's people of color running the show, mm -hmm. that I believe is the most equitable. Um, I, For me, I feel the most comfortable around other people of color. Um, if you bring in a person of color into a white space um, in order to diversify, then you run the risk of putting them in an unsafe situation. Okay. So, I don't know. For me, I, I suppose both, you know, please include uh, minority uh, composers of color, you know, LGBT and women composers of color. Um, in any and all concerts, and also have concerts entirely dedicated mm. to, um, you know, uh, women of color and LGBT composers of color, uh, just because, you know, you're so far behind <laughs> um, that uh, 
really um, as much effort as possible needs to be put in to dismantling racism in classical music. And, 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 you know, you're really hitting on something that a lot of people have difficulty understanding, you know, from, from, from the very base level of walking into that concert hall, that is not one of our institutions. That's not an institution built by a person of color. So any, any music art of color in those spaces, as, as, as you talk about all the time here in our conversation and in your writings, is beholden to the permission and the acceptance of that white audience and those white institutions. Even in, um, in one of your articles, I have a quote here. Uh, you say, while most composers of color are responding to a calling, that calling is to create artwork in our own voices and not to behold ourselves to the social construct of Western classical music. It's, it's just, it, it, it seems like there is you know, you already said we're so far behind and there's so much work to be done in establishing our own institutions. But what how does that conversation parlay with the music by composers of color that did fall under those, you know, very uh, rigid umbrellas? You know, when I think about uh, William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony, I think of a piece of music that's black through and through, but unfortunately, a piece of music that's that was also beholden to the constructs and the traditions of that white Western classical music. Of course. And, you know, if you listen to my music, it's also beholden to um, a lot of these constructs by Western classical music. Uh, I still view that as music that's by people of color through and through. Um, And even though it comes out of that, structure. Uh, I think just because white people do not consider that as classical as uh, music by white classical composers. Um, You can see that by just how often folks like William Grant still are performed. Uh, I know Florence Price is getting a moment now, but she is way overdue. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so... You know, I think in the new space we create, uh, we can still perform music by these great composers. Um, But this time we would have a space to honor them uh, with what they deserve, which is way more than what they're getting now. Mm. Um, When you talked about, uh, let me back up a minute. Garrett and I found a couple responses to It's Time to Let Classical Music Die. And they were sort of toothless, you know, no short, thought. no yeah. real thought, in, in, uh, or not much anyway. But really, I think you could boil it down to they missed your point. Yeah. And uh, so my question is, for the people who think, you know, comparing this to Stockholm Syndrome is going too far, uh, you know, these are people who might be sitting there thinking, I have nothing against you. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of a casual or subdued um, uh, racism or some sort of hate. What would you? That obviously is the person that you're trying to reach with these articles. So if you had the chance to ask them, or if you had the chance to talk to them, and they missed the point, 
what would you say to the person that says, no, that's going too far? And, and, and let me pin something on to, to Scott's question. You know, when, uh, when, when I first came across your writings, um, I, I felt so validated that someone was actually engaging this. I posted some of those ideas on the uh, Classical Music subreddit, and the feedback and the pushback was, was so violent and so angry that the thread had to be uh, locked down and removed. And I'm not sure that that's ever even happened in, you know, on that corner of, of Reddit in the Internet. So, you know, as as Scott asked, you know, what is there to be said about this violent pushback uh, t- toward these ideas and toward this rhetoric? Yeah. Um, like I said, uh, you know, as I was writing the article, I was honestly really afraid uh, because I knew it was a radical take. Um, so, you know, it would have been pretty irresponsible of me to not expect, um, you know, some kind of response like that. Uh, You know, for the people who said that, um, you know, the the beginning metaphor went too far, you know, I would honestly apologize for not putting a trigger warning um, in the beginning. (laughs) I, you know, I I was planning to do that, and then I honestly just forgot, and, um, Mm. yeah, that just didn't happen. But then again, Uh, who is that trigger's warning in service to? Yeah, um... For me, I would have put that for anyone who has been in an abusive relationship before. Sure. I, can, I can see the mention of this kind of metaphor um, bringing, uh, you know, back some really bad memories. Um, and since it is such a sensitive topic, and, you know, my article was written, it was me reaching out to musicians of color primarily. Um, I didn't really care much for any of the white people reading it. Uh, You know, I was honestly surprised that there were even a few white people who understood the message and appreciated it. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't expecting even a single white person to get it. Sure, sure. Um, but but while while you say that, you know, you, you weren't expecting a single white person to get it, in the article, in one of the closing lines, you acknowledge that white allies are there, but they're few and uh, far between. So what, what, what defines one of these very few and far between white allies for you? For me, all you have to do is just listen. Um, All you have to do is have the ability to sit down with someone uh, and hear the honest truth and just listen to it. Um, And that's such a low bar, but it's rarely met. See, that I have to say that that kind of breaks my heart because I'm of a mind that I, I am open to listen to anything, regardless of who it was written by or or who is playing it because if it's good that's what i'm interested in and it just breaks my heart to think that there are so that that you feel this way because the people around me i see as being very similar and so i think that the blanching the uh, you know the sort of wincing effect that you get from some white people to, in response to your articles is that um, that feeling of, hey, I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person? I mean, that that maybe doesn't have somebody to turn to and ask these questions. So like a potential white ally who... Yes. Was, yeah. Um, 
just listen. You know, you had an opportunity to listen to my honest truth right there in that article. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, this is a person of color speaking their truth. Just trust that. Um, yeah, to, to trust that it's your truth. Trust that you're not looking for reaction as much as you're looking for a space to to say what is what your reality is. Exactly, and that's kind of why I wrote these articles from my perspective. Uh, you know, I I make some general claims, but a lot of these do specifically come from my own experiences, um, and it's. And the fact that there are so many people of color who have responded to this article saying that, you know, these experiences mirror my own, mm. uh, I think there is something for white allies to listen to there and to recognize, you know, saying like, oh, shit, we've done a lot of harm. But, uh, you and know, own up to that harm. And, and as challenging as it can be for, you know, folks like Scott or anyone else to, you know, to think about these things. You know, I, I also felt a little challenge um, in some of the rhetoric as well. I'm, I'm going to read a quote um, from one of the articles here. You say, Western classical music depends on people of color to uphold its facade as a modern progressive institution so that it can remain powerful. So with quotes like that, I think about the uh, Damare and Anthony McGills. I think about the Awadajan Pratts, the, the uh, Andre Watts, you know, um, you know, e even me, I'm the, I'm the first black person to have a, a, a job quite like this um, at, at American public media. Um, you know, I, I have answers as to far as far as what I feel like I can do to, um, you know, break down those walls from the inside and not allow myself to be tokenized toward this end of perpetuating the, you know, uh, the, the violence that is uh, white supremacy, even as it applies to classical music. But but what what do you say to the to the uh, the black classical musician or, or even just the uh, musician uh, of color, the person of color who feels that attachment but doesn't want to, you know, again, be a conduit to um, to put, putting forward the facade, as you say, that classical music is this modern progressive institution? Yeah, I think it comes from the perspective you have um, about where you are. Um, and also mm, recognizing, yeah. you know, if you honestly believe that classical music is this progressive beacon, um, then you're turning a blind eye to the negative effects uh, it's, or the harm it's doing to communities of color. If you're aware of what classical music is doing to communities of color, then, you know, you don't believe that it's you know, such this beacon of progressive uh, progressivism that uh, a lot of, you know, these white funders are trying to claim. Um, and it also follows through with whether you break the rules of how they want you to behave or not. I think it's our duty to break these rules. Um, I think it's on us to call out these behaviors when we can call out... Um, when a friend of ours is being mistreated, call out these calls for scores that, you know, have absolutely no black people in it, even though they had like a hundred finalists or something like that. Um, 
you know, call out injustices where you see it. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. I think that's exactly what so many people of color are doing today. And that's, to me, doing the most work towards creating the community uh, surrounded by us or centered on us. Um, So, you know, honestly, if you're a person of color and you feel a little bit challenged, you know, that it's good to be aware of the relationship you're in with classical music, but you're probably already doing good work to try to make that relationship better for yourself. Oh, well, I, I just have, you know, one more <laughs> question. And, uh-huh. you know, I, you know, I, I toyed with whether or not I wanted to ask this, but but I'm going to. Okay, I, I don't think there's any question around the idea that the organization that Scott and I work for, American Public Media, there's no question that the organization has done its part in upholding some of these violent um, and 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 outdated uh, rhetorics and perspectives uh, when it comes to classical music. There's no question about that. And while Scott and I, you know, can do what we can in in our way to sort of dismantle some of that, what do you think an organization like ours, organizations as big as P- American Public Media, can do to uh, enact uh, to scale change on scale, large change uh, when it comes to to breaking down. Um, uh, these traditions that have perpetuated this uh, violent rhetoric and this violent reality for so many people. Yeah. I would say just have people of color there in the leadership. Um, in the leadership, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have people of color running the show. Uh, it's not enough to have, you know, people of color, like, say, in your ensemble, um, or have a few that are the lowest level employees. Um, There really needs to be people of color and people of color who are aware and um, willing to work for other people of color. Um, You know, people who are willing to put in the work to create a better community for other people of color um, in that organization. Uh, So yeah, for me, it's just, you know, White allies should be the ones listening, but people Mm -hmm. of color should be the ones doing the work. That makes sense. It does. Um, Before we let you go, uh, I have a, I have a, I have two questions. Number one, what is next for you going forward? What's, uh, what's on your plate as far as, uh, are you writing any uh, more articles? Are you doing some music? What's, what's next? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, I've been studying a lot of Arabic music uh, and, you know, trying to compose some of it. And I do have a few commissions on the pipeline where um, I'll hopefully get to play with that a bit. And, you know, that's the thing about all this is that I'm still taking commissions and I'm still accepting money from white folks. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like we have to, Mm -hmm. you know, I I need to eat. Yeah. but that doesn't mean I can't be aware of that kind of relationship. Um, mm-hmm. And this just puts me in a position where I can manipulate that to my favor. So I'm writing some more music. I have uh, an EP coming out soon, um, probably around mid-December. Uh, and 
it's completely absurd. Um, it's under my um, pseudonym, Communist Grandpa. And it's... <laughs> yeah, and we're having like this online party with my good friend, DJ Redacted. Uh, I does, like... love that name. <laughs> right? Yeah, we yeah. need to get together with my band, Radical Posture. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Um, let, yeah. let me let me close it up on a softball question. What composer are you digging on right now? Who's in your playlist? Oh, that's a good question. Um, this isn't a composer, but uh, a famous singer. Um, just because it's in Arabic music, you learn the singer before you learn the composer. Yeah. Um, but Um Kulthum has been someone I've been listening to You're gonna have constantly. To you'll have to spell that. Sure. U M M, then Kulthum, K U L T H U M. Yeah, I never would have gotten that. So anyway, what <laughs> what is it about that that you like? Uh, you know, they're kind of the closest to a full symphony in Arabic music. Uh, her long, uh, her long songs, um, and you know. One piece I've been listening to, like on repeat, and it's her most famous one, but it's so good, Alf Lelo Leila. Uh, and I've just been studying that deeply, looking at the connection between the maqamet or the jinns, the kind of scales mm -hmm. uh, that music has and the mood it's creating. Um, it's basically an hour long love song. Um, and there is so much going on with how those musicians create tarab. Uh, yeah, bringing it back so full circle. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Nibal, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. We're, we're definitely going to uh, keep an eye. And, um, and again, an ear. Yeah, and an ear. And if there's uh, any way, you know, we can we can support or, or help push forward um, your work, don't uh, don't be a stranger because it's, it's, it's the work we're definitely interested in. Awesome. Thank you so much. Nibal Masood in conversation with Garrett McQueen and me, Scott Blankenship, this time here on Trill Queen. Yeah, the first thing I want to acknowledge, um, you know, this isn't completely on topic, but, um, you know, as I continue to grow and evolve um, as a person who's trying to show um, as much equity as, as I can everywhere I go, um, I'm learning a lot when it comes to um, the queer spectrum. You know, even as a gay person, I'm learning a lot when it comes uh, toward the queer spectrum and, and identity. So I just want to openly acknowledge anywhere um, where we have um, misgendered uh, Nibal, that is definitely um, not... Um, you know, on, on purpose, I'm, uh, I, I, you know, I'm working hard to use their pronouns, um, correctly. So, um, uh, so shout out to, uh, Nibal for, for being open on that plane and, yeah. and, and many other planes, especially when he started talking about the white supremacists that, uh, especially when they started talking about the white supremacists, um, that they had to deal with, uh, uh, in, you know. Yes. And, um, Garrett, I'm even further removed uh, I apologize for the times that I said he rather than they, they or them. And it's not just a, you know, you know, Scott. We both understand the uh, the conversation of intent, you know, and and good intent, and right. how and how that doesn't matter and that doesn't apply. So I'm not trying to absolve us of that um, as much as I'm just trying to make the point that, you know, 
awareness is very important. And, 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 as, and as we continue to grow our um, awareness, um, you know, we will do better. As the great Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. So um, huge shout out and a huge thank you to uh, Nibal for um, offering their perspective on classical music going into the uh, um, those articles and you know and what institutions like ours can do to move forward. Scott, I was a little I was a little nervous to, you know, throw our organization under the bus a little bit. I mean, not throwing the organization under the bus, but just again growing our awareness and and acknowledging how American public media has perpetuated some of these issues and how we can um, you know break them down. And I think that intent is there as well, and the fact that things are changing, albeit in a in a slower manner than many people would like. Uh, it at least there is some intent that I feel is growing. So yeah, um, the, there's there's change on the horizon. And and I'll I'll wrap up this little portion of our conversation by again acknowledging, um, you know, intent. The the late great Nina Simone once said. Um, but that's just the trouble, too slow. In the mm-hmm. in the song Mississippi, goddamn, you yeah. know, she talks about how uh, folks are saying, "Oh, change is coming gradually." You know, later on in the in the song, Nina Simone says, "Do things gradually, bring more tragedy." So, um, you know, as as both you and I try to, you know, do our part in in dismantling dismantling uh, white supremacy and um, and uh, and and breaking down barriers in our corner of the world that happens to be classical music. Um, I hope even if you aren't a classical musician um, specifically to read uh, Nibal's writings and, um, and and to really you know think about them and see how they can apply uh, to you and your work and your everyday life and, and making this world a, a bigger and better place. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks for that. So um, on the next opus of Triloquy, Scott, we're going to get into the topic of music therapy. Have you? Uh, do you have any experience uh, with music therapy or therapy otherwise? <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've been in therapy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, maybe we could talk about that next time. Uh, physical and mental. But um, this, is a, this is an area that I know exists, but I don't know many details. So I'm, I'm interested to find out what... Uh, Claire and Lindy have to say yeah, coming the, up next time. Yeah, the guests will be Claire Klein and Lindy Walker, both uh, professionals in the field of music therapy. So you'll definitely want to uh, check in to uh, the next opus of Triloquy. Um, and before uh, before we uh, cut off the mics, just one more time, rest in peace and rest in power uh, to the late, great John Witherspoon. Thanks for tuning in.